Well, when things are tight financially, you do what you have to do. There was a, a circus who was having a, a bad year, and so the director of the circus uh, brought all of his uh, performers together and, and made the dreaded announcement. He said, I'm sorry, but there's only enough money to pay a few of you. To pay three of you, in fact. It was a tough choice, and I've given it a great deal of thought before reaching a decision. The three people who can pick up their checks are Benny the Bone Crusher, Samson the Strong Man, and Ivan the Knife Thrower. Some of you will get that later. Kidding aside, though, when push comes to shove and, and, and money is, is, is tight and, and even money in the church, there, there are battles that we wage in, in, uh, internally. And often sides are taken pretty quickly. I've heard it said that every time a church begins a, a capital campaign, usually to build a building or to do something, uh, a significant portion of the membership will leave the church. And we've all seen people get upset over what's included in the budget or what's not included in the budget. But that's not just church life. We don't like talking about money very much. And when someone starts talking about their money, their income, the amount of money they make, it, it makes us a little uncomfortable. But there's something more uncomfortable than that. It's having to spend your money. We're only a, a couple weeks away from the filing deadline for the IRS, everyone's favorite national holiday. And, and we're often, many of us will have to write a check that we didn't anticipate and try to figure out, okay, how much more money do I owe? It's painful. And every time I've had to do it, I've wondered why it's so painful. And I know it goes to the infrastructure, it goes to protecting the uh, military and, and so on. So there are some things that I oppose, certainly, that the federal government spends money on. But there are things that make us a, a great nation. But having to pay for that still hurts. And the more numbers we write on the check, the more it hurts. Why? Because we struggle to give away what we think is rightfully ours. After all, we did the hard work to earn that income. We set aside our plans. We, we sacrificed things so that we could make money and, and have a better life. And now we have to hand it away. See, we know what it's used for and most of us are okay with that. But it becomes real when we have to fund it. We struggle to give away what we believe is ours, but this is what the Christian should do, isn't it? That, that our lives should be lives of giving away what we have. Why? Because we're not beholden to what we have here and now. We ought to be different. We ought to be give freely of what God has already given to us. There's a pattern in scripture that we see that we're to live a different kind of existence, not tied to our money or what we own. And so this is the question that we're facing this morning. Every time we, we've come to a different, difficult point in our lives, we're, we're faced with this kind of, this thought is, what do we do? What does God say about this? What does God say about anything? And so we open up God's word and we see it. Let's fight against the idea to build a theology on our feelings and emotions. Because we often do that. These verses in 1 Corinthians 16. It's a short passage. It's just a few verses. And my aim this morning, though, is to show you that these verses make a difference in our lives. They matter. It's not only 
that, that telling us what a church ought to do in Corinth 2,000 years ago, but rather that God has, has told us what we ought to do today with our funds, with our money, and also to put a protection around it, both for our good and for the good of the recipient. And that's what Paul is talking about this morning. Paul's talking about what a church should do to help those who are less fortunate, those who don't have much. So those who have much, what is our responsibility to give to those who don't? Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the very first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. That's my first point this morning is receiving the collection. Paul begins these four verses by saying, now concerning. Now what this means is, is that this has been an issue for the church or that he's been asked about this. We don't have these letters, but we, we know from other parts of, of, of 1 Corinthians that Paul had been receiving letters from this church. They'd been writing letters, asking Paul questions. And in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, he's addressing these questions that he's received. Imagine how long some of these letters written to Paul would have been. Or maybe the church wrote to Paul multiple times, so he's getting multiple letters coming in. I mean, the book of 1 Corinthians is not a short letter, is it? It doesn't just deal with one or two things. This is issue after issue after issue. So much to fix. So much to correct. And as we get to the conclusion of Paul's message to the church in Corinth, he addresses the collection for the saints. In other places, Paul has talked about the, how the churches need to pay their pastors. And here, Paul makes it clear that the church must also take care of poor Christians. Now, as a disclaimer or an aside, um, I've done my best to not talk about money from the pulpit. Um, it always seems a little self-serving. It, it seems a, a little uh, self-serving for me to stand up here and say, you ought to give money because... My job is based on your generosity. And you, you're, you're giving pays for our church to exist, our, our body to function, our, our staff members to have jobs where we can devote ourselves to the work of the ministry. But I don't want to ever have anyone think that I'm doing what I do simply for a paycheck. But in the course of preaching through a book of the Bible, we see that God does talk about money and God does talk about giving. I'll address in a moment the mandate to care for pastors and ministry leaders, but I, I want you to know that I do so with trepidation. But here in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, Paul is addressing a different kind of giving. So we know that when the offering plate is passed, or now when you put your offering in that black box in the back, we know that that pays for the lights to work, it pays for the staff members to have jobs, it, it pays for ministry expenses to be covered, it pays for lots of pizza for the little ones. It pays for all of those things so that ministry can function. But here Paul has a different thought. He's saying, yes, you, you give to that. You give to your local church. But here, I, I'm telling you, you need to give to something else too. He says they make, take up a collection for the believers who are in need. I'll address some principles for us this, in the conclusion. Uh, but I want to start by saying that Paul is writing to Christians about Christians. What Paul says here doesn't apply to those outside of the church. 
or the family of Christ. And that's good to do. It's good to feed people. We're doing it here soon. It's good to do that, even if they're not members of the church and even if they're not Christians. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, these churches, the church in Corinth, you have a responsibility to take care of other believers, even if they're thousands of miles away. In Galatians 2, Paul says that he was eager to care for the poor. So we know it's important for him that no one goes without when there are those who have plenty. In verse 3 uh, in Galatians 2, we see that needy believers were in Jerusalem, quite a distance from the church in Corinth in Greece. Most likely the Christians in Corinth never met those in Jerusalem. They're taking Paul at his word that there is need and that he's been there and he is telling the truth about this need that needs to be met. So what needs did they have? Well, if you remember from the book of James, James is written from James, the half-brother of Christ, who is the, the pastor, bishop, whatever you want to call it. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And if you know what happened, and as he's writing the book of James, he's writing it to the dispersed Christians, Christians who have been forced out of Jerusalem, but some people have stayed. So you say, who stayed? Well, people who couldn't leave. There were widows in the church, likely. And we see this in Acts chapter 6, that, that there were leaders in the church who were so busy uh, doing work, waiting tables, or serving people, that they were uh, missing out on teaching the word and serving people through the teaching of the word. And so they said, appoint deacons to do the work of waiting on tables. There were widows who were being uh, not taken care of either, and so the command was to take care of these widows. So we could imagine and we know for certain that there were widows in Jerusalem, especially the older widows were not able to flee. Persecutions raining down, the people who had the ability, whether financially or through their youthfulness, were able to leave the city. But the older people, the older widows who had no money, who had no family, they had to stay. It's been my experience that very few people would oppose a church feeding and taking care of the poor. If we did a poll of everybody in our community and say, what should a church be doing? That would probably be at the top of the list. But we know this true. The church can't just take care of the poor. With so many needs, we just extinguish everything that we have uh, within a matter of a few weeks. And so... Uh, um, there, there's, there's more to a church than just feeding the poor. Now, that's part of it. And some people would say, well, we really don't need a building. That we can meet under a tent or we can meet out in the open or we can meet everywhere. But then we'd be scrambling to find a place to, to serve and to meet together and to gather and do what we're doing right now. I've also met people who, over the years, firmly believe that pastors should, should not be paid. And in, in hindsight, maybe they just meant that I shouldn't be paid. But... Um, there's a case to be made for that, I, I suppose. Um, but there are believers, Christians, who believe that pastors and those who are working in ministry should not be paid. Now here's where all this ties together. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs the church that they are to take care of widows. Something that would certainly apply to the church in Jerusalem and to us. And Paul also talks about what the church should do to take care of their leaders. He says this, let the elders... You can take the word elder, put pastor, means the same thing. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. So for Paul, this wasn't an argument about where the money should all go. 
Paul says, look, there are people with needs in the church, and the church should meet those needs. And he says, and those who labor to teach and devote themselves to the work of ministry also deserve to be taken care of. In verse 1 of our text, Paul says this. He says, as I directed Meaning that this was not an option, that, that we as Christians are commanded to do this, to take care of others, whether they be in a leadership position or they be suffering. And we could say, well, since we don't know these people, since we've never met them, we're not going to give them anything. Can't say that. We also can't say, well, we'll just pray for you, brother. We'll pray for you, sister. Now that's important, absolute importance that we pray for those people, but we can't just stop with our prayers. We have to put our faith into action, don't we? Faith without works is dead, is it not? And so if we say, hey, brother, we're just going to pray for you, and yet we have, we have what can help those people and we don't give them anything, then what good is our prayer? What good is our faith? According to Paul, this giving that, that the church would do would be a regular occurrence. He said this on the first day of every week. This is one of the reasons why we know that the early church began meeting on Sundays, and that was the established day for gathered worship. But that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that the charitable giving from the church, from the Christians, the members of the church, the charity that they were giving to other believers would have been a regular occurrence. Not a one-time thing, not a monthly thing. This would have been every single week. And the command that Paul gives applies to everyone. In verse 2, he says this, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Each of you. Each person, as he or she is able, must give to this work of the Lord. Paul doesn't give anybody an, an escape clause in this. There's, there's no asterisk that's saying, hey, look at the bottom of the page. Oh, yeah, unless you want to. Or if you've got multiple vacations or if you've got to pay for your third home or you've got to get an RV or whatever it may be, that stuff that I'd love to have. But, but all of those things, he's not saying, you know, if you've got a, these five mortgages, you need to pay those off before you take care of the widows and the poor and the orphans. No, he's saying each of you have this responsibility to take care of those who are suffering. I think most of you right now are thinking through the idea of the tithe. It's an Old Testament concept, a, a command that was given, which was generally, not always, but generally 10% of one's income. But to understand this, the tithe that goes to, that, that goes to function the church in the Old Testament was kind of a double uh, a purpose for it. There was the religious aspect of it. You've got to remember, they were a theocracy. It also went for military roads to take care of the common good. So it wasn't just a tithe, it was a tithe and a tax. And so you say, well, wait, we, we the Old Testament, that's past, right? That We don't have to pay attention to that anymore. The 10% uh, idea of a tithe is not established in the New Testament, so that means we don't have to give anything now, right? We're, we can give whatever we want or we don't have to give anything. What we see in the New Testament is that we give until it sacrificially affects us. We give until it hurts. If you're making $10,000 a year and you give $5, that's probably not sacrificial. It could be. If you're making $100,000 a year and you give $200, eh, it probably doesn't, it's not a sacrifice as much. 
What that number is for you, I have no idea. I don't know anything about what you give. But I do know this, is that we are called and commanded, and I think the idea in Scripture is that we keep giving until it hurts, until we have to make sacrifices in our own lives. Giving is meant to be felt. Some say the Bible demands 10%, but that's neither affirmed nor canceled in the New Testament, so what do we do? What's clear is that the laws were not lowered from the Old Testament. Here's the thing. We're not under the Old Testament standard, the Old Testament laws anymore, unless those things have been reiterated in the New Testament. We're not under the standard. You say, well, freedom. We don't have to do those things anymore. No. Do you understand that when Christ came, that standard in the Old Testament was not lowered, it was raised? In the Old Testament, we see laws against murder and adultery. There are laws against actions. But Jesus comes and says, look, goes even further. Yes, you shouldn't commit these murders. Yes, you shouldn't commit adultery. But if you're guilty of, or if you're, you're angry with a brother, you're guilty of murder in your own heart. If you've lusted after someone, you are guilty of adultery. Just as if you committed the act. Old Testament was a starting point for obedience. Those are the bare minimum, and we found that simply following those laws are not enough. If you've never killed anyone or had an affair, you may think you're okay, but God looks at your heart. God sees what's inside your heart. What you would do is if all those uh, uh, boundaries were removed and you had ultimate freedom to do whatever you want. That's what God sees. Jesus raised the bar. The stakes have been raised. Our commitment level and obedience has been lifted up so much higher than the things were in the Old Testament. It's really not that hard to follow a set of rules if they're clear, are they? If you have a job, you follow those standards, right? Show up on time, leave on time, do your job appropriately. You have tasks that you have to do and you do them. And every single day you follow those rules, you follow those standards that your employer has set, and, and, and those are easy. You, you know what to expect. If you have endurance and willpower, you can do it. But here's the problem. In the Old Testament, that standard that God gives, even though Jesus raised that standard, we still can't do what the Old Testament commands us to do. We still can't perfectly follow the law. So the 10% tithe in the Old Testament is not the standard that we face, but it's a beginning point. 10% was simple obedience, but we know the whole story. We have the risen Savior. We, We have the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so here's the question that I'd ask you this. Why would you ever want to do just the bare minimum? And we... When I was a kid, my parents would tell me to go do something, and I would do exactly what they said to just a little bit to the point where I could say, I did what you said. Sweep the floor. I I made three sweeps. I swept the floor. Go clean up your room. Well, I cleaned it. I didn't clean it totally, but you didn't tell me to do that. Why would we want to do the bare minimum when God has done so much for us? Why wouldn't we want to give joyfully so much more in order to glorify God and be a blessing to others. Doesn't the power of God give us a new way to view the world? It should. Before we knew Christ, we were slaves to money. Now we're willing servants of Christ, serving him with all that we have, including money. By the way, have you noticed that's why we give? We give to show that we're not slaves to what we have. 
we give it away. We're not servants of lucre. We're not servants of money. We're servants of the holy God. And we show him that by saying, here, I don't need this. This is yours anyway. We care for those in the church by sacrificing what we already have. And for those believers outside of the church, because that's what God has put into our hearts to say that we are going to live sacrificially so that other people can be blessed. And so because of this, Paul establishes that there must be a collection taken and that everyone in the church must contribute to it according to how much they have. And next in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives instructions for how this money is to get to Jerusalem. He says this. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul wanted to remain above reproach. There's a lot he could have said that made people angry with him. If you read through his letters, there's a lot in here that as Christians it causes us to say, I don't know about that, but it's God's word, so we believe it. But he knew the danger of an accusation. He knew that if, if someone were to accuse him of stealing money, what it could do, it would ruin him and his ministry. This is one of the first lessons I was taught when I went to my first job as a student minister, as a student pastor. My senior pastor, um, who had been in ministry for 25 years at the time, said, Ryan, I never touch money. I said, what do you mean? He said, look, people are going to bring your, their camp money you know, a couple hundred bucks to pay for summer camp. They're going to they're gonna bring you all sorts of money, or if they forgot to give an offering, they're going to hand you money, and, and they're going to say, hey, would you drop this off in the offering plate? And he said, no, you can't do it. He said, all it takes is one accusation, and your ministry may be ruined. And so he didn't. And, and the truth is, is that he was never accused, because everyone in the church knew that he wouldn't touch it. That he had nothing to do with it. He didn't want to know what anybody gave. He didn't want to know what anybody made. And he didn't want to touch anybody's money. So he was cautious. Paul knew that this could be a problem. There's other things happening here too. Corinth and Jerusalem were not neighbors. Get across the Mediterranean. If you've seen how far Greece is from Israel, you know that that's not an easy trip either by land or by sea. And so Paul instructs the church to appoint couriers to take the money from Corinth all the way to Jerusalem. And Paul said, I would go with you if you if they need me. This brings another reason why Paul would not want to be the sole person carrying the money. If the church in Corinth would have known the responsible people who were in their church, not Paul. And he directs the church to write letters of introduction to the church in Jerusalem. And so you say, why, why do they need letters? All, you know, if someone just came here to our church right now and said, here, here's $10,000, I think we'd, we don't need a letter. I'm taking it. I'm not, well, I'll make one of you take it, but I'm not going to take it. Yes, I don't need your letter. Just thanks. Peace be with you. Come back again, please. But Paul says that it needs to be written. Now do your best to imagine the world that Paul was writing into. Uh, uh, we often sentimentalize the past, but the ancient world was bloody and terrifying. We see conflict every day because we, we carry around computers in our pockets that alert us when anything in the world happens. So we know instantly when stuff happens. Back then they didn't. Wars were regional, but they still happened. There was also piracy both on land and on the sea. So if the church in Corinth was giving cash, lots of money, 
the church in Jerusalem, that's a target. People were hesitant to trust strangers. Those who brought money into Jerusalem had to have credentials. The, the traveling party would have taken a lot of money together. There were no credit cards back then. You couldn't send PayPal or Venmo. You couldn't do any of that. There's another level of protection that Paul wants to give in here too is that the letter from Corinth would have said exactly how much money they're giving to those in Jerusalem. It protects the people who are carrying the money from the temptation. Hey, we can spend some money along the way. The letter prevented the travelers from taking, say, 10000 in today's money and arriving with a mere five hundred. Kids do this all the time, don't they? That, that the ice cream truck runs through your neighborhood. Hey, Dad, can I borrow five bucks? They don't mean borrow. They mean can I have. But can, can I borrow five bucks? It's like, okay, okay. You expect them to come back with a few dollars, right? But somehow between the front door and the driveway, the rest of that money is lost. Usually buying other kids ice cream or buying two things of ice cream or something. And so this letter from the congregation and from Paul would have protected those travelers from being accused. When traveling by car, this is the other thing too, when traveling by car, we don't often see the, the people on the side of the road that are asking for money. We can roll our windows up, turn the music on, and, and really not have to communicate. When you're traveling by sea or by land, when you're walking or riding on the back of an animal, you see that. And so these travelers might have been tempted to give some of this money away, which is good, but that's not what that money was designed for. One last reason why Paul might have required these letters, and we don't really know why, but one of the last reasons that, that seems probable, um, were that there were groups that were causing issues for the government. And they, were, they had been fighting against the establishment for, for quite a while, and so if people from another country, another part of the world come, come in with cash, with money, um, if there's no documentation for it, it looks like they're giving money to fund the rebellion. And so all of these reasons, uh, and maybe all of them together, maybe one or two of these, but Paul says, we, you need to write letters. I need to write a letter to the church in Jerusalem to show what this money is for and who it's from. Now, that's the background of what's happening in Paul's instruction. This chapter um, 16 is not this deep theological truth you're not going to find. It's not Romans. It's not Ephesians. It's not really the rest of the book of Corinthians. It's very personable. Paul is writing and naming names and saying, hey, I can't wait to travel to you. Here, here are some instructions of what to do before I get there. But there are some takeaways. Some points of application that we can use in our own lives from this kind of passage that most of us, when we read through 1 Corinthians, we would just kind of read over. First application for you this morning is this. The church has an obligation to help the needy. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the ways that the world sees our love for Christ is our love for them. That's why we're starting a, a dinner program. It's not just a food pantry, but it's a food pantry and a dinner program so that we can feed people when they're in need. We want people to know that we care for them spiritually, and I think people do, but we also don't want to neg neglect the physical needs that people have. But we also see something else, that we are to take care of believers first. Galatians 6.10 says this, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We must first take care of our own. You know, I hope 
that if you had a need in your family, that you would take care of that need before you would start to take care of other people's needs. That, that is your primary job, is to take care of the needs in your own home. The church is your spiritual family, and because of that, the people here are your next responsibility. Building on that number two, second application, the church must discern who is really in need. 1 Timothy 5, which I'll read from in a moment, tells us that we must make sure that we're giving to people who are actually in need. And ultimately, one's family, though, should be the first ones to step in. This is what 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8 says. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you have the ability to take care of your family and you don't do it, you're worse than an unbeliever. If someone in the church is needy and has family that can take care of them, that's who should be taking care of them. The church steps in when that's not an option. Finally, if someone can work, they must provide for their own needs. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. In other words, anybody who receives money from the church must be willing to do a few things. They need to be genuinely needy, a Christian, exhausted all their family help, and work if they are able to. What this means is that the church's responsibility is not to throw around money, whoever asks. A moment ago, we read 1 Timothy 5, 3-8. through 8. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is no le not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Another way that you can put this is that if someone is receiving some kind of benefit from the body, from the church, they ought to be willing to serve in the church. Makes sense, right? That, that if you're receiving money from this church, this congregation, you ought to be some kind of ownership in the, the future of this church. Well, that makes sense, but you would not believe how many people have been helped by churches and have disappeared not long after. You would be surprised at how many people have asked churches for money here and everywhere else, asked for money, but yet don't really contribute to the good, to the good of the church. We get requests all the time. All the time, weekly almost, from people who aren't even members of the church. And, and one uh, not too long ago got angry when I said, brother, we, we only give benevolence to our church members. I said, there are other avenues we can help you with, but, but I can't go pay your rent right now. We don't know you. And he got mad, got angry, said some things that I won't repeat. And I'm really not going to help you now. But, but, but he was in need, but our responsibility is to take care of our church first, our members first people who, are, who have ownership in this congregation. This passage is, like I said before, is one that if you've read through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, you'd probably skip over. 
But I hope you see that this is important for the care of the local assembly. Over and over, Paul says that he wants churches to be beacons of light. He wants the church to glorify God through the taking care of God's people. This letter was written to Christians who were part of a local church. This means that the people had turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. It means they were special to God, not only because they were created in the image of God, but they had been bought by the blood of Christ. They were his children. While the chaos is happening in the Ukraine, and we've seen this in, in Ukraine, that, that all of this fighting, and we've seen these uh, people who have been instructed now to make Molotov cocktails. I mean, this is what the, 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 it's come to, is to defend your home and defend your family. You may have seen things that talk about why Ukraine matters. Geographic location, natural resources, that they've, they've got, it's a large country geographically. It's placed right next to Russia. Uh, they're bordering Russia, which is why there's such a problem now. But strategically, that, that's important for the rest of the West because Russia is not the most stable country in terms of leadership. Never has been. But Ukraine matters for something else, something far better. That they are created in the image of God. Those people were created to bear witness to the glory and the greatness of God. We often don't think in those terms, but it's a good thing to do. We hate what we see. We don't want anybody to suffer and die. And we, we hate to see that these resources are, that, that are there being misused. But what good is oil? What good is resources? What good is, is any of that if human life is not taken care of? We care because those people are just like us. They don't speak the same language. They may not look like us. But those people are created just like we are. And why this matters and why 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4 matters is because every single person is born with dignity and worth. And we show our love for Christ by showing our love for others. And this passage matters because it reminds us that even if someone's thousands of miles away from Corinth to Jerusalem, from East Tennessee to Ukraine, that space doesn't matter. They're human beings. And the church in Jerusalem had people who were suffering. And the Christian thing to do, that, that Paul makes this statement, he says, look, you are believers in Christ. Christ has, has purchased you. Christ has given his life for you. God has sent his son so that he would die for you. Shine your light among men by supporting your brothers and sisters. Take care of those fellow image bearers and fellow believers. You may never meet them. You don't know them. But it is your responsibility, believer, and you have plenty to help those who don't. This is what a changed life looks like, doesn't it? This is, this is what our lives look like. Why we hurt so much when we see what's happening overseas. We see it and we hurt because we understand that those people have inherent dignity and worth. And for those churches that are suffering, our heart aches even more. That right now, pastors and church members are huddling behind stacks of pews to hopefully present bullets and ammunition from coming into their church. And we suffer when we watch. Not like they do, but we ache. 
because they have worth and value. And so this is what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. He's saying, look, Jerusalem, the believers there, they're suffering, they matter. You have what you can do to help, now do it. And this is the challenge that I give to you, Christian. Those of you who've been blessed, those of you who have much, those of you who have been given uh, great blessings by God, use it for the glory of God. Use it to proclaim the gospel. Use it to, to make God look great. Use it so that you can be a blessing to those who don't have what you have. In other words, be a blessing as God has been a blessing to you. Would you pray?